heads up. This episode, John and Ryan ninja rap about middle school dates, Chuck Lorre, and hair extensions as we open wide the gates of time on Here's Why It's Great. Hello and welcome again to Here's Why It's Great, the podcast where we take what you hate and tell you why it's great. I'm your host, John Bring, and this week we have a very special guest. He is a longtime friend of mine, a former producing partner back at Valdosta State University class of... Uh, his name is Ryan Pate. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Oh my god, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Is, ever since you actually did the first episode of this show, all I could think of the back of my mind was, man, I really hope there's a situation where I can invite myself out to LA and be on John's podcast. Oh, hell yeah. You didn't have to invite yourself, man. I wanted you to be on this since day one because I know you're a guy with a lot of opinions. You're a big movie fan. You're a big television fan, video games. You know a lot about a lot of stuff. You make a lot of references. A lot of them go over my head. So I'm excited to have you on the show. Well, I mean, we kind of, we are cut from the same movie cloth slash celluloid. That Indeed. works. You know that works. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a little, <laughs> little punnage there, I guess. Or wordplay, you could say. Uh, yeah, Ryan, like I said, we've been friends for a very long time. He is in town visiting, and he has been bugging me with this movie for quite some time. He said pretty early on, like, I know exactly what movie I would want to do. And what is that movie, Ryan? That movie is the third installment in any young man's mind who grew up uh, in the time that we did, in the mid-80s to early 90s, and that is going to be the wonderful Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle trilogy. Specifically, we're going to be focusing on the third one. Yes, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Part 3. Don't call it Turtles in Time. Because that is an insult to the wonderful Super Nintendo game, which we all played, and then I would never insult Turtles in Time just by calling it simply Ninja Turtles 3. Exactly. And actually, if you look into turtle lore, there's so many Turtles in Time things. There's multiple video games. Obviously, the arcade is the most famous one, which would go on to become the aforementioned Super Nintendo game, which would later be ported onto Xbox. They remade it as an Xbox game not that long ago, like within the last four or five years. Because I want to say they also did it, because I played it when they did it on PlayStation, and I realize the... Uh, uh, the banner and the signature of this show uh, is to tell everyone why it's great, but I just really did not like that remake. The remake of the game? Yeah. yeah, I felt like it lost some of the charm of the Super Nintendo graphics and the Super Nintendo, the the energy that that game had, like spit-shining it and making it a little bit more fancy didn't work for it. Like, I think uh, side-scrolling games, that style of game, beat em up mm -hmm. needs to be 16-bit or 8-bit to really work. If it's too fancy, it's just, uh, it doesn't work for me. But we're not here to talk about that or the comic books or the many, many video games. We're talking about the movie Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3. Uh, like I said, don't call it Turtles in Time, even though the Blu-ray, when I put it in this morning for us to watch, it definitely had, the, it said Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 colon Turtles in Time. Ooh, they're marketing people. Did yeah. not communicate with each other. Yeah. What I mean, look, had they called it Turtles in Time back in the 90s when they released it, I would have been so over the moon stoked about it because I thought they'd be adapting the arcade game. But then I would have arrived to the theater and been sorely mistaken and very pissed off because 
it is a shadow of that game. <laughs> well, it, this kind of goes back because when we we watched the movie earlier, by the way, everybody, we were looking at all the different effects that they were doing, and we noticed something about this Turtles movie that is absolutely there's not there's no kind of CGI effects in the movie whatsoever. It's just all practical effects, and it just made it look amazing. And I just think that's like that's. That kind of ties in with a whole other thing about, you know, when me and you came up watching movies and anybody else that's a little bit older than us and so on, we just, we loved that we got used to that kind of practical effects. So we see a lot of CG stuff now and, you know, I think people that kind of came along later and saw, you know, CG heavy stuff, you know, that's what kind of spoiled them. So when they see some of the older movies like that we have, like the Turtles trilogy, they're just like, it wasn't really that great. There wasn't like a lot of uh, effects in there. And I was like, what are you talking about? There's a lot of practical effects in there. I mean, the Turtles themselves are giant practical effects. Oh, yeah. And look, this is the first movie that they did not use the Henson Company. Because the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is a goddamn masterpiece, fight me on that. I will destroy you. That is a wonderful movie, and the effects of the Turtles are arguably the best in the very first one. Oh, yeah. I think because they were new, they were experimental. This also was like more of a indie film, if you can call it that. Oh, yeah, it absolutely. Was, it was uh, actually the largest or the most profitable independent film until maybe actually Pulp Fiction overtook it. But for a time, it was the biggest indie film ever, made over $100 million off of a $13 million budget. But what they did with that $13 million was amazing. They had the Henson Company. Jim Henson was still alive. It was actually one of the final film projects that he had uh, a hand in. And so the Turtles looked amazing. Jim passed between the first and the second movie. So the second movie, although the turtles looked really good still, they depreciated in quality a little bit, looked a little bit more cartoony. And by the time we got to this one, the Henson Company had nothing to do with it. And it was an all-new company. And even though they emulated the look and style of the Henson Company, I think it was called, what, All Effects Company? But we're, we're, I'm, not, I'm not trying to trash anybody's work, but you could just tell that they didn't have the talent that the Henson Company attracts working on this film, and so the Turtles themselves, even though they are still a monumental achievement in this movie, they don't have the same finesse that the previous two movies do in terms of the way the Turtles themselves look, but we have those practical effects. Basically, the the gist of the movie is, guys, that the Turtles, they're sitting in their lair at the beginning of the movie, they're a little restless, they're tired of hiding in the shadows, they want to be seen, they want to be out in the world, and Splinter wisely says, you know, you'll never be accepted, like, we got to stay calm, chill out, guys, stay down here, and they get their opportunity. You derived all of that just when he just said, be patient, my son. Yeah, you got to really, like... <laughs> looking for subtext. Yeah, you're looking for subtext. You got to really, like, get a backhoe in there, get, like, a whole mining company. It's like the scene <laughs> from Jurassic Park where they are getting the amber. That's what's going on in my mind uh, when digging into this movie. You're because... wondering how life's going to find a way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the turtles are restless, specifically Raphael. April comes in. She's about to go on vacation, and she brings in this weird old scepter that she found at the flea market, she hands it to, to the boys. They're playing with it. All of a sudden, we cut back to feudal Japan, the 17th century, and we see the same scepter. It starts glowing, and she all of a sudden disappears, and in her place was the guy from feudal Japan. Kinshin. Kinshin. Sure, thank you. Mm-hmm. And he, they get replaced, and soon enough, the turtles go in after her. They switch places with the honor guard of the... 
what do you call him? I guess the the king, the sh- the emperor, the shogun of this. The shogun, the shogunate, shogunate. I'm I, if I'm butchering it for those. For, you know, for, for those that do know this, I'm sorry. Please uh, email John and tell him to never have me on again. Yeah, you can uh, email us at hwigpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tell us what you hate so we can tell you why it's great. But no, the turtles go back in time to feudal Japan and to, in an effort to get April back. And throughout the story, they find acceptance among these people. They they get roped into adventures with a small village who are fighting against, I guess, the oppression of the shogunate and the shogun. Who's also, who's also doing business with um, uh, English privateer slash pirates. Yes. Um, and so, you know, the, the gist is they go back in time, they do some fighting, they have some fun, and then they end up coming back having, I guess, learned a lesson. The, the beautiful part is all this feudal Japan stuff is pretty much like, uh, I'm sure not actually shot in Japan. I'm sure it was shot in America somewhere, but it's all sets. It's all practical. It's all just real people. All the big battle scenes where we have like larger armies of villagers versus these trained ninjas and, and samurai. All real, real people. Real people. Real actors providing jobs. You know. Yeah. If uh, if they did this sort of thing back in those days, it'd be one of those title cards at the end of the movie where like 15,000 jobs were provided by this single feature. Uh, we definitely would have had that. 15,000 felt like there were a lot of just village extras in the in this movie. Or if but... it was just a YouTube movie, you know, it would be someone that would sneak into an area where they were just doing like a reenactment. Oh, right, right, right. And then they're going to be like, all right, we're going to get the turtles on the horses. We're just going to make them ride through there. Yeah, they just ride through one shot and boom. it's It'll be like uh, we just actually went to the Griffith Observatory today. <laughs> uh, so we saw the movie this morning, went to get lunch, went to the Griffith Observatory and reenacted a scene from the movie Bowfinger. Uh, where uh, Eddie Murphy yells, gotcha suckers, to the heavens. So I got Ryan to go down to the bottom of the observatory while I remained on top and had him yell up to me, gotcha suckers. But that is a whole movie about making a movie where the stars are not aware of his involvement. So basically they would be bowfingering the Ninja Turtles. They would bowfinger the Ninja Turtles into this reenactment scene. See, life finds a way. Life does find a way. The life of movies finds a way. Life does find a way. (laughs) But in this movie, we have Paige Turco returning as April O'Neil. You can hear me smiling through the microphone right now. Ryan is beaming right now. Talk about, I mean, is it normal? To still have a crush this long after oh, after the movie's done? Look, I get it. She's a very attractive woman. However, but, I was always a Judith Hoig person. She was April in the very first Ninja Turtles movie. Maybe it's just my affinity for that movie. Maybe it was even even at the time when I saw Ninja Turtles 1. Sorry, folks. We're going to actually discuss all three of these Turtles movies. Yeah. They're some of my favorite movies of all time. Turtles 1, like I said, legitimate masterpiece. I remember when I was a kid, I think I was eight or nine when that movie came out, went to go see it in the theater. My parents couldn't take me. They sent me with my dad's best friend, Juan. We sat down in this theater. I don't even think I'd even seen a trailer for it. I just had seen the poster, which I stared at and I had hanging above my bed. The, hey dudes, this is no cartoon with their foreheads sticking out of the sewer. And as it unspooled before me and I saw April, I was like, that's April? Because, obviously, I had a huge crush on her from the cartoon. And I was like, this lady doesn't got it going on like April. Where's the yellow jumpsuit? You know, like, where are the white boots? Because, obviously, I was going off the cartoon. However, the older I've gotten, the more I've appreciated her performance. She's very realistic. She feels like a New Yorker. And, honestly, when uh, I was moving into my new apartment a few months ago, I was by myself organizing DVDs. And what did I put in? But Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. 
uh, to test out my new, <laughs> to put in a uh, 30-year-old movie to test out my uh, brand new giant 65-inch Ultra HD TV. And when I was watching it, I was watching Judith Hoek's performance, and I was like, you know what? I get it. I get why the turtles were into her. She was a good-looking woman. Didn't look anything like April in my mind, but she had it going on. But Paige Turco, the April who started in part two, The Secret of the Ooze, mm-hmm. is and, also in this one. Yeah, She's and, then, and then she stuck around for the third one right exactly so some of that some of that turtles money so yeah get that turtle get that turtle paycheck lady uh so she obviously began in the last one uh she never like to me really inhabits the feeling of april o'neill do you agree i'm simply acknowledging that you're talking about it i don't agree with you because i love page i meant i respect the work that she did in these movies and i uh i really hope she's listening yeah, Paige, if you're out there, um, give Ryan a call. You can e- always email me at hwigpodcast at gmail.com. You know what? Drop me a line and let me know what you hate so I can tell you why it's great. And also, I'll uh, give you Ryan Pate's phone number, and uh, he'll call you Toot Sweet. Isn't she married to somebody famous or something like that? Like uh, She was married to somebody famous. Uh, who's she married to? She was married was? to uh, Jason Mara. O'Mara? Jason. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jason O'Mara. You, Jason O'Mara, You yes. pointed him out to me before, and every time I have to look him up, and I recognize him only upon seeing his face. But Yeah, he did that. Uh, he did the remake of Life on Mars. I enjoy his work because he did a lot of good voiceover work as Batman in some of those DC animated movies yeah which we've never seen yeah i know we talked about it this morning like i'm i'm a big comic book fan and i'm a big movie fan but for some reason those animated movies i tend to not see i watched a little bit of the dark knight returns one uh when it was on tv and i thought that was cool because peter weller doing the voice of batman that was pretty badass who oh robocop you mean oh yeah yeah yeah. sorry officer alex murphy (laughs) doing the voice of batman was pretty neat well my brain still racked a little bit because you said you had never seen a trailer for Ninja Turtles going in. I knew about it going in because, you, you know, I'd see bits and pieces here and there, like on TV, but the first time I ever saw the first Ninja Turtles trailer was Burger King, and I'll tell you why. Because Burger King, they had this little promotional thing where they were promoting the movie, so they were also, if you bought, like, a kid's meal plus with an extra, like, $3, you would get a, uh, a VHS of a random uh, turtles episode oh, from man. from that's, the from that's the, awesome yeah from the yeah from the eighties and so you watch the little you know 20, 23 minute episode with no no commercials which when you're young and YouTube and you know DVR and all that was was still uh, a couple decades away you definitely appreciated it but most importantly then after the after the last bit of credits rolled and then you know the little green, you know the the green uh, the green slate with the uh, the movie information right. comes You're on. You're approved for all for all audiences. And man, from that point on, I don't think I ever rewound that tape to see the beginning of the episode because I just kept rewinding back just so I could oh. watch the trailer again and again and again and again. And I was completely uh, geeked out with it. My uh, my wonderful father actually he took me to see all three of those movies. We saw the first two because the first two actually came out pretty close. Well, pretty they close all together, did. They so. all the first one came out in ninety. I think the second one came out in like ninety one. It was a very quick turnaround. This one came out in ninety three. So I think oh. they were all very very tight in terms of a trilogy of movies. They all came out within three years. I mean that's just that's just what happens when you're in a universe. Getting those turtle dollars. Getting them turtle bucks, baby. And each one of these movies, even the third one, as hated as it was, each of them made money. 
They they were very profitable. Uh, yeah, so the first one I saw, again, with uh, Juan, shocking experience for me, watching Raphael yell, damn, watching the violence oh, and, yeah. and how dark that movie was. Like, Raphael almost gets beaten to death. Casey Jones, who uh, was a character, I, I guess I missed most of his episodes in the cartoon. I wasn't super familiar with him, but I was like in love with that character he was so fucking awesome do you remember his voice in the cartoon uh no it was very kind of flat it was almost like they knew like all right this guy's wearing a hockey mask so clearly his voice is going to be muffled a little bit you know mm-hmm. so it always just kind of sounded like this oh yeah 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 talk like this i'm casey jones and anybody who thinks i'm not doing it right start your own podcast called why ryan's wrong <laughs> yeah uh, you know what that is actually an alternate uh podcast that i was batting around with sebastian when we started this thing was uh <laughs> why wrong? yeah know- he's like all right i got this friend you've met him once or twice named ryan pate he's always wrong let's do this podcast why ryan's wrong let's look at his social media Ooh, look at <laughs> look at that tweet wrong exactly so watch that one the second movie I don't know why I'm giving the history of why I've seen it. Probably because I don't have a ton to say about Turtles 3. The second movie I saw by myself. I was picked up from my best friend's house. I had had a sleepover and picked up. And my mom randomly was just like, hey, do you want to go see a movie? I was like, yeah, obviously. She's like, Ninja Turtles 2 is out. And I was like, I I think I was more aware that that was coming out. Because I had seen the poster where all the turtles were crowded around the the vial of ooze and we saw the uh the shadows of token razor on the background obviously we all I thought they were one, yeah. trying to be like bebop and rocksteady so i was like why do these not look right what what are these shadows so my mom took me to it i saw that by myself randomly on i think i must have been opening weekend and i remember being very like tired i think my friend and i had stayed up all night and uh when mom picked me up and i was like kind of lukewarm on the movie and i was also lukewarm because vanilla ice was in it and i was just resentful of any teenage influence on my precious teenage mutant into turtles oh because 1992 you were just writing in your diary how anti-establishment you were oh i was i was i was like oh yeah they put vanilla ice in there for the teenagers Because I think there were like two teenagers pretty close to where I was sitting in the theater. Because I think at that point, if it was 91 when it came out, I would have been like uh, 10. Uh, And then I would have been 12 when this one came out. And then this one, I I had this girl that I was in love with, uh, Lauren. And she was like my Winnie Cooper. And I was just obsessed with her. And I was like, I'm going to ask her out to go to the movies. And I'm going to ask her to go see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 with me. That's the perfect date movie. I had convinced myself that this was going to be it. This was going to be the movie where she'd be like, I don't know, John. Because we were definitely in different social strata. I was very low on the social totem pole. She was very high. But I had still convinced myself. I was like, you know what? If I go in there, if I'm nice to her, and I bring up Ninja Turtles 3, she's going to say yes. I never did actually get the guts to say it, though. I never did ask her. Oh, man. I thought that foreshadowing was going in a completely different direction. I thought you were just going to tell that, like, we went to the movie and she walked out halfway through. But because I love the turtle so much and I spent that hard-earned $5, I (laughs) stayed. No, no. I think I went with Darren, my best friend, since I've been nine years old. Uh, I think we went and saw this third one together. And we feel like we walked out of that theater thinking that was rough that wasn't that wasn't great we we thought in about mm, let's say what 20 30 years you're gonna have this thing called a podcast john (laughs) and ryan the guy who's always wrong is gonna try to tell you 
why it's great, and you're gonna be and you're gonna be stuck there, and you're gonna have to go along with it. So it's important to keep your diary of resentment handy. <laughs> yes. Oh, I've got that in my back pocket at all times. So let's I've got talk mine memorized. Let's talk about this movie. We've talked about our way in, our love of the turtles. And I'm assuming you are just grew up a big turtles fan. I mean, you and I have quoted the first turtles movie. Oh yeah, ad abso- nauseum. Too, oh yeah, absolutely. So. I mean, just uh, just a few days ago, uh, I was down for my cousin's wedding in San Diego. And as we were doing the multiple errands to get everything ready for various uh, celebrations, there was this one record shop, forget the name of it, but I walked in and it was great. There was all these records on the wall, these uh, concert posters, movie posters, CDs, um, CDs, DVDs, VHSs. And then I looked over and I saw where they had like some kind of uh, like different kind of trading cards. You know, nowadays you go into the store, you'll see some baseball cards, football cards, Pokemon, 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 Pokemon. And, and- Yu-Gi-Oh! occasionally. But don't forget, there's also Pokemon cards there. Oh, so, right, right, right. So they have all that kind of set up. And, uh, but right beside it is second series Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle trading cards. And I just stood there for a moment because it, it had been a really long time since I had seen the actual cards, much less the cards that are in the package still with the piece of gum. I would... Never have touched the piece of gum. No, man, you're going to chew that shit. Even if if you paid me. But, like, the last time I had been in a position where to really see that was that first series of X-Men cards based on Jim Lee Lee drawings. Oh, trust me. I know that. That was actually the second series of X-Men cards. The first one was, uh, like, Alan Davis and shit drawing. I promise you. Promise or maybe the, I got them the flipped. First but that was the one because that second series, that's the one that had the Nightcrawler one that you really liked. Oh yeah, that I almost got a tattoo in the back of my leg of Nightcrawler, this drawing of Alan Davis's. Which oh, yeah, yeah, been yeah great. you're right. Yeah, now I'm remembering it. Which clearly. would which would have been great because then when people realized you had that tattoo and they'd be like, oh, so maybe you could teleport out of this conversation. And that's when I would have worked my way across the room and given you a high five and said, hey man, that is a blamp thin cool yeah. tattoo. I think I'm past the point in my life where I would get a tattoo. But had I gotten it, had if I had that on my my leg, I would have been on my left calf. Don't let tattoo enthusiasts hear you say that. Well, no, I know, and, and even Darren's like talked to me about like, oh, we should get a tattoo one day. And this is gonna sound very cynical, but I feel like I don't believe in anything enough to get a tattoo. <laughs> you know, like a pop culture thing, because I was I always associate like getting a tattoo of like I used to want to get the X Men symbol. Obviously, I wanted to get Nightcrawler. I wanted to get like a Spider Man head or something. Um, you know, I don't I don't feel like I want to put that on my body anymore but if i would have gotten the nightcrawler tattoo i would not regret that at all today i would still be proud of that shit i would probably go get it touched up every now and again because it's a badass drawing and i would yeah i love that character i would only if i ever did get a tattoo it would be on my hand it'd be the three casing units for where wolverine's claws come out that's pretty deep cut nerdy but i kind of like that that's pretty that'd be pretty good (laughs) uh which now like don't exist anymore thanks to the x-men movies uh, yeah, it where just comes out of- it comes between its knuckles. I, I kind of hate that they changed that in the comics too. It makes more biological sense because I always wondered like, how do the claws come out? Where do they go when it, when they're back in his uh, in his forearms? But um, so good on you, Brian Singer, for figuring that out. I don't know who actually on that production made that decision, but I just realized something. This kind of goes back to a previous point that we were talking about. The three Turtles movies in that span of time where they were being uh, released and all that, those were really only really major comic book movies that were released during that time. That's not necessarily true. There was also Batman Returns. 
Oh, yeah. In the in the one year that the Ninja Turtle movie did not come out. All right, fine, fine, fine. I, like, but in other words, but I mean, there wasn't like a it wasn't like a, a Marvel and DC saturated market. Oh, absolutely. It was. It yeah. was I mean, it, 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 you can make the argument it was a Batman saturated movie market, but that was simply based on uh, Tim Burton and Michael Keaton's availability at did, the time. Did Darkman come out during this time too? During that three year period, I think it did. Darkman was like ninety early nineties, wasn't it? I want to maybe Darkman was like ninety three, ninety four. Yeah, it may have been the same year as this, but because I know the crow was definitely 94 yeah the crow came out afterwards blade obviously was a few years away uh we were after the run of superman movies which ended in like 87 i think with- and you know what and i just realized one of the best ones of, of another favorite of um yours and yours and mine what's that uh the rocketeer oh hell yeah how could we forget the rocketeer oh, that's gosh. that's 91 right that they, oh man that is still like that's that's on one of my top 10 top 10 comic book movies of all times oh absolutely so. like i still fantasize about building my own rocket i've talked about it on the show before i think that i went to my backyard and tried to figure it out for a day or two after seeing the movie <laughs> um when really i should have just tried to make my make that helmet because i loved the way that helmet looked but yeah i love the rocketeer so yeah we're we're looking at a time when this is not a saturated market with superhero stuff. The Ninja Turtle movies coming out that regularly, that was definitely not the norm. That was very far outside of the normal pop culture. Oh, we did have a couple of other... Didn't we have The Shadow and the Phantom come out around this time, too? The Shadow, the Shadow and the Phantom, those were... those were. I want to say that was in the realm uh, range between 95 and 90... Uh, you know what? I think ni- you're right. 90, 97, sorry. They, God, they picked the weirdest projects during that time to... All right, well, the Turtles made sense because they were a phenomenon. Everybody loved them. The kids were super into them. They made a ton of money. But yeah, why try to make The Shadow into a movie? Why try to make The Phantom into a movie? Judge Dredd? That's a weird choice to make into a superhero movie. The first, we'll say the first Judge Dredd. Oh, well, yeah, the second Judge Dredd, not only did it come out after the superhero boom had long since been happening, but... <laughs> just Dredd. Yeah, yeah, just Dredd, the <laughs> Carl Urban one, which is a fantastic movie, and I recommend anybody who hasn't seen it, go watch it right now, Run, a, Don't Walk. Another selection in the Ryan's top ten comic book movies of all yeah. time. Yeah, well, I'm gonna just, since you said that now, now when I go on my sister podcast, Ryan is wrong, <laughs> I'm gonna have to talk about why Dredd is terrible. But no, kidding, Judge Dredd, yeah, that was such a weird choice to make like why like of all the things that you could make like why not make an x-men movie they were hugely popular too but but when you think about it i mean all that stuff really was right around the corner because i watched this video on how uh, blade had saved the uh, uh marvel universe so Blade was uh, Blade was ninety seven or ninety eight. I want to say it was ninety eight, but that but like I said, Blade was just right around the corner, and then that's when comic book movies really kind of started to take off because everyone just loved the look and feel to it. But if they would have looked a little bit earlier, they would have saw some of the dark undertones they did with that first uh, that first Ninja Turtles movie. Yeah, and of course, when you have a trilogy and. The internet wasn't really as popular then, so you had a lot of, if you had a lot of uh, advocacy groups, you know, who were just saying like, oh no, this is too violent. Because, like I said, the first one was really kind of dark. There was, uh, there was swearing and there was some, there was some real heavy. Hard-hitting action scenes, Hard-hitting, like heavy situations, you know. And then, you know, the second one, there was a very intense feel to it. But there was still that element of campiness, especially in especially in the fighting. Because how I mean, how much did the turtles actually use their weapons? They didn't the, at all in the second one. Yeah, parent groups got to New Line Cinema between the release of the first movie and the second movie and complained about the turtles using their weapons. So if you look to that first scene where it's the four turtles breaking up a robbery with the help of Kino, they pretty much discard their weapons all immediately and use toys and whatever's around. Mike instead of nunchucks, Michelangelo uses a yo-yo. <laughs> 
and some sausages. And sausages. Um, Donatello uses like a Nerf bat. Uh, I forget what I think Leonardo uses like a trash can or something like that. But they all basically get rid of their weapons immediately. Leo puts his he puts his swords in the ceiling. So he goes, he sticks them in the ceiling and jumps up and holds on to them. I think you're thinking of the first one, aren't you? I can't remember. Cause no, because the- it was a scene where he's doing, he's like, now you see him, now you don't. Oh, right, yes, yes, off, yes. So. Uh, and yeah, because he holds on to them and kicks them. He also does a lot of that in this movie. However, there is much more sword play in this movie. Like, you know what, let's get focused. We're right. already half last, an hour in, we barely last scratched point. the surface of this movie. Last point, and then I will be quiet and let you run the show. The third one, I noticed there, there was a very serious compromise. Because, yes, not only did they use use their weapons, but they also had that same element of campiness to it. You know, they like it was almost like they were having like they were they were they were having fun with the fights, you know, like, eh, yeah, if they knew kids were going to emulate it, you know, they'd at least be all like, all right, well, we'll we'll just make sure when we sell the toys that they're plastic. Yeah, there was a definitely like a slow or no, not a slow descent, a very quick descent into kids movie territory from the first one to this one. The first one I loved because it took the subject matter as seriously as you possibly can. Yes. For four anthropomorphic teenage turtles. With the exception, oh man, if they would have had all red bandanas in that first movie. Oh yeah, that would have been tight. But then it would have been hard to tell them apart. I get it. It makes sense. But I think they took that that subject matter really seriously. It was shot amazingly. It was dark and gritty. And it was that type of New York City that we don't have anymore. Now New York feels like a theme park. It feels too safe. It was like the dangerous, like more taxi driver style. And it was just, it was the cinematography was dark. There were shots where you can't tell what's going on here and there, but it was okay because it brought you into the world and immersed you into this dark underbelly where the story resided. And in the second movie, everything's kind of bright. And it starts right at the beginning with everybody eating pizza and they're in a brightly lit store when, when they're stopping the robbery. And it ends in a nightclub with Vanilla Ice playing with the turtles dancing to some song that Vanilla Ice is supposedly making up as he goes along. Even though his background dancers knew exactly how to dance with the ninja rap. And they also knew the background. They knew to say ninja, ninja rap during it. So I mean, what are you talking about? They like it. They like it. <laughs> and and this movie, it is just straight up kids movie from from jump pretty much. Oh, yeah. We start and it's they're in their uh, subway station. They have their lair is just a big subway station that's closed down. They're doing their practicing, I guess. They're like dancing. They're having a fun time. They're doing flips and kicks. And uh, everybody actually, all four of the turtles have some example of them doing basically kata with their weapons, like yeah, a I mean, display. I, the opening sequence, I mean, you had best of three worlds there. One, because you got to see that, yeah, they were taking their training seriously, but they're also having fun with it because they're teenagers. Absolutely. They're, ha- they're teenagers, they're having fun with it, they're taking it seriously. And then they are, I you know, the, five I, foot something tall, so they're definitely yeah. mutants. They're ninjas, because look at what they're doing with these weapons. They're mm-hmm. doing, they're, they're practicing, they're showing off all of their skills, and we can clearly see because of the shells on their backs, they're turtles. It's a four quadrant opening. It's it that that is be, great. I love the opening. And they're being silly. You can in, you can interpret that scene many different ways. But of course, when we were watching this, we simply just interpreted that as wow, those are ninja turtles. They are being ninja turtles with their ninja turtle weapons. <sighs> ninja yep. turtles. Ah, uh, love it. Also, the to the benefit of this opening, we get no dialogue. And that's good because the mouth moving on 
these uh, this particular costumes for the turtles just does not look great. So since they don't really move their mouths throughout the entire thing, it's just like sound effects. Uh, we don't need them to move their mouths, so that actually sells the costumes a lot better. Yeah, and uh, we barely see Splinter. I gotta say, man, the Splinter puppet in this is so bad. It is so rough because again, go back and look at that first one. It's one of the best puppets I've ever seen. It looks alive. Well, and Splinter looks like a goddamn sock puppet in this. Look, as we've said before on the show, it's not here's why it's perfect. It's here's why it's great. And absolutely, I'll agree with that. But I'm here to simply to simply highlight how 3 has a very rightful place within the first two. Is it going to be perfect? Of course not. Did Godfather 3 really win any awards? No. No. But it's still part of the overall story or universe. I'm going to keep hitting on that till John explains what I'm talking about. He keeps going on to this universe thing. And I still, I would like to explain it, but I don't understand it myself. <laughs> While we're watching the movie, Ryan's like, oh, this is, they say it's part of the Turtles universe. It's part of the Turtles universe. And I'm saying, what does that mean? And it's like, you keep trying to use that to sell it to me to make it better. Cause it's, not that I'm po- try- it's not that I'm trying to sell it to you i'm just saying like there's when you see when you think universe you know there's just there's just a bigger picture of all these stories together in terms of the things you were pointing out to me earlier which we'll get into later we will get into and look had the live action ninja turtle movies continued beyond part three had there been like a part four part five and those picked up threads from this and those movies were good or even if they were just like this one which is not quite as good as the first two even if they picked them up and they were part of these like you said universe then i would have accepted that a little bit more and for this one to not have a lot of story arcs for our characters i would have accepted that because it is part of a larger whole however as it stands this is the third part this is the culmination of what is this trilogy this original trilogy of movies and we don't get any kind of satisfying story for our characters sure the turtles go on a fun adventure it's a new setting for them it's new places for them to go new people for them to meet it's interesting that they are going back in time it is a it completely throws the book out for what the turtles movies are a bad bad guy that's not the shredder or or the foot clan exactly and i and for those reasons i do think it's great i think it's great that it got it out of the norm and i think the time traveling thing is great And hell, I wish that they would have done a part four where maybe they could have incorporated more time travel. Uh, There's an element to this movie. uh, I guess I'll go ahead and talk about it. So the Shogun guy Mm -hmm. has a scroll that he's been hanging on to, this ancient scroll, where his ancestors drew up a battle, the Battle of a Thousand Swords, it was called. Yes. And it's where four demons who look remarkably like our four Ninja Turtles, just with no colored bandanas. Just super naked. Yeah, completely naked. They showed up, and according to this, they defeated all Thousand Swords. They decimated the ancestors of the Shogun. They shamed the family, and it's taken all this time for him to get back on top. And all of a sudden, of course, the turtles show up, and he's like, Oh, fuck you guys. You're back to get me. You're back to kill me and finish me off. So my thought was, these four turtles, that's Leonardo, Michelangelo, Donatello, Raphael. Are we ever going to see them hang on to the scepter again, go back even further to fight this guy's ancestors. Like, are, is that the, like, part five that we never saw? Maybe the part four we never saw. I mean, are, do we really want to do back-to-back of them going to, like, ancient Japan, though? 
Like I would. Who knows? Who I, knows? We we have no we have no idea what the fat cats at New Line Cinema were thinking in yeah. terms of that. So ah man, I I tell you, I really would have loved to have seen where the series would have gone after this. Turtles four, maybe they would have finally done Bebop and Rocksteady. Had they done Bebop and Rocksteady and gotten the Henson Company back involved. Holy shit, man. That would have been amazing to see, like, a practical version of those two characters. But as it was, it turns out there was not another live-action take on Ninja Turtles until the Ninja Turtle movie that was released in 2014, uh, the one that Michael Bay produced. Yeah, the Megan Fox one. But even then, that was pure CG. Yeah, they were all CG, and eventually we got Bebop and Rocksteady in the follow-up to that movie, but they were also CG. And yeah. I, we're never going to have another world where they do the turtles as costumes. Practical effects. Yeah, it's too stuff. it's too hard. Yeah. like And and I think filmmakers, and certainly producers, because it's easier and cheaper, have convinced themselves that CG is quote-unquote better. But the truth of the matter is, like, look at Ninja Turtles 1 versus the Megan Fox version, and it's yeah. night and day with our connection to those four characters. Yes. Because we can reach out and touch them in the Judith Hoag <laughs> uh, 1990 Ninja Turtles <laughs> But they, it, you don't ever feel that real, true emotional connection to them. Also, they were fucking hideous in the yeah, Megan Fox one. I mean, they they tried a little too hard to kind of set it apart from all the different animated versions that had come before that. And I'd had people that I knew when I was talking about, like, oh, well, the 80s cartoons that, you, have, you know, yeah, it was a little campy, but that's, you know, when you're young, you look at it and that's what you love. And then other people are like, what do you mean 80s version? You mean like the movies? I'm like, no, like the cartoon series. And then they just gave me the most blank stare mm-hmm. because the only other popular animated version of the turtles came along i want to say it was early 2000s yeah early 2000s there have been like three more like distinct iterations of this series since the time that we watched it which is crazy because i used to do with sebastian a lot of like we'd go to barnes and noble and do drawings for kids and stuff and we actually did a full ninja turtles day which obviously i was super stoked to do to just (laughs) sit and draw the turtles all day i could do that (laughs) i do that in my free time and kids would come in and ask for them and i draw them kind of like they looked in the old cartoon and they'd be like, oh, okay, cool. But I could tell they were like, they thought I was drawing them wrong. And I was like, what am I doing wrong here? And uh, They one thought of the people- you were going to draw the Raphael with like the bandana that covers his entire head. Yeah, well, that's the newest version. But no, this is the one where I think it was Donatello had like a gap in his teeth. And they were like, I think it was CG and they had like really big hands. I'll show you a picture of it. But there was like it was CG and they had really big like hands and feet. And um, it was like pretty close to the traditional. I think instead of wearing the uh, the wrist the bands on their elbows and knees, they like did like more like tape, like I white what, tape I know around what you're their talking about now. and stuff. I think that's that's the when I was talking to you about Rob Paulson doing the voices, which by the way, Rob Paulson was the voice of original Raphael in the '80s, and now in the version that John's talking about is actually he does the voice of Donatello. So shout out to Rob Paulson. Yeah, shout out to that guy. Send us an email at h podcast at gmail.com tell us what you hate so we can tell you why it's great and then you can also tell us why ryan's wrong apparently and or you can go on a date with ryan i don't know I you would. and Paige turco you could do a triple date you Paige turco ron paulson that rob. sounds like a good day rob is going oh sorry to, rob rob paulson <laughs> rob's going to completely destroy my confidence because he's such a cool nice guy I, i've met him at dragon con and oh just, yeah you know you always like whenever you meet people famous and you're just kind of like man i'm gonna say this and this and this and i got up there and he was just like the absolute nicest guy you know he was talking to me and my friend that i was with and i was just like you did voices on uh animaniacs that was that was really cool i uh i laughed at that 
<laughs> you know, and you're somebody who I've never known to be speechless. So that must have been Dude. quite an experience. Oh yeah, and I mean, still, like I said, the voice of Raphael, and I'm just like, you, you were you were a voice I heard when I was a when I was a child. I know yeah. you get that a lot. So, but continuing on saying that they've had so many different iterations of these characters, they just released, I think, a year ago, uh, Nickelodeon, who I believe owns the rights to the Turtles now. They do. Um, they released a brand new version where they're all like really huge and blocky, and it looks a little bit closer to the Michael Bay Ninja Turtles, which I do not like. But, man, let's just talk about the turtles as a concept. Let's take a step back, look at it from 30,000 feet. How fucking amazing is it that two guys in, like, New Jersey who love Frank Miller comics and wanted to make fun of Daredevil, they wanted to make fun of the X-Men, they just made this comic, like, basically in their mom's basement, uh, made a run of, like, what, 5,000 copies and sold out, like, instantly? Oh, yeah, it was great. And, well, because the now the uh, original ones were, were in black and white. Yeah, they were in black and white with, uh, I think, the maybe the covers only have the color red in their masks. I don't know. Yeah. But they were just these couple of guys with this unbridled imagination, and they were not trying to create something that would stand the test of time. And they did. They created Mickey Mouse. They created Spider-Man. They created Superman with these turtles. The turtles will last longer than we last. All right, I'm not trying to be a dick when I say this, but they did literally create, like, a universe, the same way that George Lucas created... Uh, oh, absolutely. Like, like, created Star Wars. Absolutely. And it's just crazy to me that something so weird and so specific, especially when you think about, like, the Foot Clan clearly is making fun of the hand ninjas from Daredevil, the Shredder. I mean, everything is like... Did the hand first appear in Daredevil? I always thought it was something that appeared like Wolverine first. No, no, no. Well, I mean, they just existed. I think uh, the hand... Uh, I th- want to say it was Daredevil first, but you know what? Now that you mention it, I'm not exactly sure, but it, definitely Wolverine tangled with the hand. Uh, I just associate them more with Daredevil. I feel like they've shown up as villains in Daredevil's world uh, and a lot li- more. And, and literally in the uh, amazing Netflix show. Yeah. One of the great joys of my life was when the episode in season two when the hand ninjas are fighting Daredevil and Elektra, and it's just like, oh my god, I can't believe... like. It's sort of like watching the Avengers finally assemble at the end of Endgame. It's like, I can't believe that I got to live in a time where I get to see a show, a super well-done show of Daredevil and Elektra fighting hand ninjas. What more could you want? And the framing of it was perfect because you could pause any part of it and it looked like it would be part of a cell oh, yeah. in, a, in a comic page. Absolutely. But back to the Ninja Turtles, just something so specific that they were making fun of. They were making fun of Teen Titans. They were making fun of the X-Men. They were making fun of the New Mutants. They were making fun of Daredevil. They were making fun of dark and gritty comics. And the fact that these, all these in-jokes like somehow was this perfect alchemy that Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird put together and for a dark and gritty comic for a dark and gritty comic that somehow became something that children 30 years later are just as into as they were when we were which was already five or six years after the original comics came out i've only just read some of those early comics this year because my best friend the same one who i've been friends with since i was nine bought me like a trade of the first 10 15 issues of the Mm -hmm. Ninja, ninja turtle comics and let me tell you that first issue it's all there it's all in there. April's in there. Shredder's in there. The Foot Clan's in there. There are so many aspects of that comic 
where it's like, wow, they knew what this property is from moment one. You like, the actually, whole origin, it's it's all in there. You, you can actually find the very first issue online. Because, I mean, it's just it just starts off, it's really cool. Now, who was, because if you've read it, cool, but if not, I might give a little bit of a spoiler. So, it simply just starts off with Raphael just jumping over rooftops. Mm-hmm. And he's just given the little exposition of who he is. Like, like I'm Raphael, I am Ninja. You know, I'm going to deliver a message. And it's just... Like when you read it, it's just now if you only if your only exposure to the turtles has been like all the fun kid stuff, this is gonna come as like this is gonna kind of come as like a little bit of a shock to you. You know, you'll be all like, oh wow, like this is this is violent. This is oh bloody. yeah, they're they're like killing dudes in that first yeah. that first comic. It is it is no holds barred. And so I just wonder, I I do wonder whoever it was that kind of sat down uh, and said looked at that comic and be all like, you know what. This is going to make an amazing kids show. Like, obviously, we got to change a few things. Yeah, I mean, obviously, but... some there was somebody in between Eastman and Laird and them getting that on the air, uh, whether it was syndicated or what channel it was on. I can't remember at the moment, but somebody between the two did come up with some take on this, where it's like, oh, it's a kids show and it's really brightly colored, and they all have different colored masks and they have wacky villains and yada yada, and they were able to transform it from one medium to the other very beautifully but the core of the characters is all still in the comic everything's definitely a few shades darker but Raphael's still angry he's got a temper he's uh, got a short fuse Donatello highly intelligent maybe a little aloof Leonardo stoic leader and Michelangelo is the party dude I mean, it's like the song says, like, it's just everybody, all those characters are so finely tuned from moment one in the comic book. And somebody was very smartly able to translate that from that to the cartoon. Who was it? Who was it? It was the guy, the guy who did Roseanne, Big Bang Theory. uh, Chuck Lorre? Yeah, he's the one that actually wrote that 80s Ninja Turtles uh, theme song. No fucking way. I promise you. Because that's always like that's always some random fact that people like to point out. They're like, oh, Chuck Lorre wrote the uh, opening credits song to the 80s uh, Ninja Turtles cartoon. Okay, full disclosure, folks. I had to stop it because I had never <laughs> heard that thing about Chuck Lorre before. <laughs> that just blew my ever-loving mind. Holy crap, Chuck Lorre, uh, as you said, famously a writer on Roseanne, creator of the Big Bang Theory, creator of Mom, creator of Two and a Half Men... Uh, I think he's worth a, uh, north of a billion dollars for making all the TV shows. Chuck, please feel free to reach out to us and let us know. Yeah, let us know what you hate. <laughs> let us know if you hate your own shows, because we would love to cover them. Or not. Holy crap, it's because I'm not a big fan of that style. I'm not a big fan of like Chuck Lorre uh, shows. So, holy crap, he made something that really affected my childhood. I didn't know he was a songwriter. I just watched a video about him explaining how he got the gig. Apparently, he wrote it and, like, recorded it, like, a demo of it in, like, 48 hours. Because they were looking, they were down to the wire looking for a song. And they had, he and, I guess, his songwriting partner had put in their bid for it and had been ignored. And uh, they couldn't find anybody to do it. And, man, so Chuck Lorre did the song. That's crazy. Guess what is not going to be an episode of Ryan's Wrong About Everything? Uh, it's this Chuck Lorre thing. Yeah, because you were <laughs> telling me that story, and I was looking at you real skeptically because I'd literally never heard it, and now it just shook me to my <laughs> core. I am I am a broken man now, thanks to you. Thanks so much. Oh, okay, man. but we are almost 50 minutes into this already, and we have got to talk about this movie. Well, what do you think's going to happen when you put two buddies in a room with some microphones? With because, some microphones and tell them to talk about Ninja Turtles? Because, yes, because, you know, uh, like I said, I have dutifully listened to all the other podcasts and they've all been very 
wonderful, phenomenal pieces of work. So thank you for that. And thank you for allowing me to be a part of this opportunity. But, you know, I kind of got to make my own footprint here as the guy that just... Man, he just rambles on about anything. Man, he gets John really off topic. Well, well, the truth of the matter is the plot for this movie is extremely simple. Like, I think a three-year-old could probably follow it. Like I said, the turtles go back in time to feudal Japan. They're trying to get the scepter. The people, I guess, are being threatened. I don't know. That part was a little a local village. A local village is being threatened by the by the shogun. You know, and it's just since it's they described it as a feudal system. So of course, you can imagine the lord of the castle wants the villagers to pay taxes, provide food uh, for his soldiers and armies, and all that. There's a little bit of a rebellion going on. Apparently, this is just the only village in this particular area, and the only way they're going to be able to squash this rebellion is talking to Walker, who's this the bad guy from lethal weapon 3 among uh, other films yeah lethal weapon 3 he was also the bad guy in uh, the first antonio banderas zorro uh, Stuart wilson is the actor's name and then he was also uh, he was also the doc in hot fuzz the one that got his foot uh, shot off in the end which we saw hot fuzz in the theater together we did i remember Good every times. movie we've seen together oh man really well i can't say the same but I've seen a lot of movies since you've lived out here. Uh, so he's talking to Walker. Walker is an asshole. He doesn't really have any specific goal other than, I guess, wanting to make money. He yeah, wants to sell his guns. Acquiring acquiring riches as any you know privateer pirate in 1603. Right. And speaking of pirate, he's got a whole gang of dudes who are at his beck and call who really, really feel like rejects from the Pirates of the Caribbean series. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, it was, I mean, if you notice, none of them were ever really in the moonlight, so you could not uh, see, oh, their, yeah. see their true form. That's true. Uh, that's true. He has one in particular, this balding guy with the beard who is really bumbling and dumb. He's essentially the Smee uh, to Ni- Walker's Niles, Captain Hook. Except this one was Niles. Oh, it's Niles. Okay. Yes. He gets wet willied several times throughout the movie, which I didn't realize that was a thing that the turtles did where they, I guess, lick their fingers and stick the fingers in his ears well it's not like raf was gonna drive a sigh through his head i wish that would have been <laughs> badass plus it would have saved us more scenes with that doofus but april gets as i said sent back in time she gets grabbed because she just appears in the middle of the shogun's castle and they're like whoa wh- what happened to my son they assume she's a witch they assume she's a witch she actually stupidly claims to be a witch and she threatens them she's like i will shrink you all down because she has a walkman and at some point it gets unplugged and i think they're like she's listening to like miami sound machine or something like that uh like do the conga and they're like oh what what is this and she claims to have shrunk four guys and i guess gloria stefan she claims to have shrunk them and she's gonna shrink all of these guys too and i'm like girl you are going to get stoned that's probably the new yorker in her coming out you know probably because when you think about you know you know all the tough new yorker people they're always standing up to a challenge no matter what it is yeah you know and so and i know that's kind of that's kind of that's kind of being a little stereotypical of a certain mentality but like i said as soon as like yeah walker got in her face and all that because when you also think about the times they were used to women just being very submissive and quiet, and then you have this, you know, very brash, bold, beautiful woman who is, like, standing up to them and, like, calling them on their bullshit just, like, from the get-go. And you know what? Now that you mention all that, that really does make me feel that maybe Paige Turco did a better job than I'm giving her credit for, for embodying that April O'Neil persona. April O'Neil, if nothing, is not... Somebody who will not step down from a challenge, will not step down from somebody threatening her. She is a badass, 
And sure, maybe the turtles have to save her quite a few times. Maybe she gets herself into trouble a lot. But you know what? She's fucking brave. And this version of April is certainly brave. And yeah, she doesn't take shit, and she gives it right back. In fact, they're trying to save her later. She's like, ah, this is the worst rescue I've ever had. And she's bringing up the fact that she's been rescued countless times before by the turtles. And this is the worst one. So it's like, oh, man, even in them saving her, she's still giving them shit. It was perfect. So we move on. The turtles come back in time. Michelangelo gets split from the group. Uh, he's ambushed by the uh, rebelling village. He go. He ends up getting taken prisoner there well, with the scepter that is their ride home. Well, th- this whole thing happened was because they made the assumption that the scepter being a mis- mysterious object is going to be in a temple and it's going to be surrounded by priests. So the whole point of this equal mass time displacement was going to be that like, okay, fine, four turtles leave, we get four priests back, you know, and you know, consider they're still priests, so it'll be kind of like a docile exchange in case, you know, so in case there's more people, but it won't be anything that our boy, Casey Jones, who's brought in for bodyguard duty for Splinter while the turtles are gone, can't handle. Oh, hell yeah. That's what I was getting to as well, is we have the return of our good friend, Elias Coteus, as Casey Muffucking Jones, and man, oh man, when he walked onto that screen, today I was excited. I was excited in 1993 when I saw it for the first time because I had no idea he was going to be in it. I was like, hell yeah, my boy Casey's back. He's one of the best characters in the first movie. He's one of the coolest actors out there, Elias Coteus. If you don't know him, he's been in a million things. And the theme of me always mispronouncing things, I named him, uh, I called him Elias Coteus my entire life. So only recently do I realize that, oh, he's of Greek descent. And Coteus, if you hear him pronounce it, that's how he pronounces it. But Elias Coteus, great actor. Very, oh, yeah. very underrated actor. And he's great as Casey Jones. How many, I mean, how many times in random conversations when I lived out here the first time did revolve all around us quoting Casey Jones from the first movie? Oh, yeah. Cricket? You gotta know what a crumpet is to understand cricket. I'll teach you. Boom. <laughs> um, I love quoting Jose some Casey Jones. Jose bat? Tell, Tell me, me you didn't pay money for this. <laughs> you didn't pay money for this. This is going to come as a real blow. You can say that again, Chuck. Um, I You can say that again, Chuck. I definitely quote Casey Jones and Elias Coteus a lot. I also really like him from the movie uh, Some Kind of Wonderful, uh, where he is the like punk character that Eric Stoltz ends up befriending. Have you seen that movie? I have not seen that. It's Eric Stoltz. It's Mary Stuart Masterson. It's Leah Thompson. Hubba hubba. Dude, Leah Thompson. This is how many... like. How many times have you mentioned Leah Thompson on the show? Already? I don't know, but it's it's starting to be a real problem with and me. She's, she's done multiple movies. Oh, she's done a that, ton of movies. That, no, I, well, I mean, I, I know she's that. done. Mul- she's the only person who's been in multiple movies that we've covered on this show. Yeah, that you specifically have also noticed. So it's okay to have a long lasting crush because that's how I feel about Paige. Oh, I don't hold it against you that Paige Turco is your long standing crush. Like I get it. Like Leah Thompson, I've had a crush on since. 1985 so i totally am right there with you right until i think i told the story of her being at back to the future when we were at the hollywood bowl and saw her and she was sitting a couple of uh, booths down from us and i was like ooh la la even now (laughs) and she's in her probably 50s 60s by now you started you probably started humming the uh howard the duck uh, the Howard the Duck. Yeah. <laughs> I love that song. Love that <laughs> sequence. Love Leah Thompson. I could do a whole podcast on just why she's great, 
We're not doing that today. We're talking about Elias Coteus. He's in some kind of wonderful, it's like this punk character, and uh, he helps Eric Stoltz out, kind of fend off the preps towards the end, because he's like got all his ruffian friends with him. Did and, that movie come out before uh, the first Turtles? Yes, a couple years before. Well, then that that was all the training he needed before he could just start knocking out foot soldiers in uh, yeah, for a- real. April's family's uh, pawn shop. For real. Was I'm, it a pawn shop or was it a junk shop? It was like a junk shop. Okay. I don't think a, I don't think pawns were involved. I think it was more like an antique slash, yeah, just like a flea market type thing, I guess. And thank uh, God that they had those symbols in there. Yeah, I know, or else how would Leo have fought? He certainly can't use the swords. Uh, but the turtles get back. They get replaced instead of uh, Priest. He gets replaced by the Honor Guard, I believe Honor Ryan guard. mentioned. So, of course, you know, these are these are your these are your warriors. You know, the warriors are there. And so now Kenshin, of course, recognizes them as like, uh-oh, this is bad. These guys aren't priests. They're the Honor Guard. So, of course, these are the warriors that are the best of the best. But luckily, the, the Honor Guards are kind of taken aback because this is a very brand new situation they're in. So they're having to gather themselves. But meanwhile, the time displacement puts the four turtles in the battle that the Honor Guard were in. While they were in, I guess, the Daimyo soldiers were in the middle of a fight with the villagers. Yeah, a little skirmish. And so, of course, I guess they were the only people... Yeah, they were the only people on uh, on horses. Yeah. And they were, and they were you know, gallop, galloping through. And the turtles, of course, are assessing everything that they're in, you know. And Michelangelo, he's the one holding the scepter, but he's backwards on his horse. For some reason. While they're trying to make sense of everything, as soon as the scene really gets going, uh, the horses buck the turtles off into the... Uh, the mud. Yeah, in, into a mud. Donatello makes a quip about swallowing a, a, a frog. frog. Hope it, it wasn't, wasn't an ancestor, which makes no sense because they're fucking turtles. But in the meantime, Michelangelo, his horse is still going like full steam, like into the woods away from the battle. And he eventually gets caught up and taken a prisoner by... Mitsu. The, by Mitsu, who is Shinjin? Kenjin. Kenjin's girlfriend, I guess. Kenshin. His his lover. You you screwing it up made me screw up. I don't I, I don't do good with names. Actor as who played also... Kenshin. I'm so sorry. Please feel free to reach out to us and H W I G podcast at gmail.com. I was just thinking we're gonna tag everyone we mentioned like in a tweet. Is yeah that... yeah we should <laughs> might as well. I'm sure they all have Twitter accounts. Uh, so Michelangelo is off with them. Uh, let me just go back to Casey Jones real quick. Okay. The one thing that I don't love about this version of Casey Jones super clean. His hair is very, like, silky smooth. He's got his long brown locks. It doesn't look sweaty. It doesn't look greasy. He was very greasy and grimy in the first movie and looked homeless, frankly, and might have been homeless. This one, you could tell that, like, this is a, a Casey that's had to, like, cl- kind of clean up his act, probably by virtue of being part of April O'Neil's life through his connection with the turtles he's had to clean up he went and got a job even though he wasn't in the second one yes we never saw him in the second one he just shows back up in this one he's like hey long time buddy but his hair's a little bit too clean his clothes are a little bit too nice and he does bring his hockey stick but he doesn't come with like his golf caddy bag like strapped to his chest with all of his various weapons he just comes with one hockey stick and that's it you know what now that we think about it it's probably just like just very well kept uh extensions Oh, what do you mean from for his hair? For his hair. Oh, I mean, yeah, because Elias Coteus is bald. Well, because, well, I mean, when he so also, it was probably a wig or of some kind. I mean, it I'll looked be, natural uh, at the time, at least. I mean, he could have been doing other movies at the time that required him to have the short hair, but then of course, you know, extensions are just an easy fix, so they're just kind of 
there you go. We're just going to put those extensions in. Yeah, yeah. Make sure there's some Pert Plus in yeah, those things. definitely Pert Plus. So a little bit too shiny, but that being said, really welcome addition to this movie. He also plays another character because April gets taken hostage by the Shogun. She gets thrown into this prison with a guy named Wit who looks remarkably like Casey Jones because she he's was also played by Elias Coteus. With short hair. I oh, just, yeah, I'll, yeah, yeah. Okay, he did have, we, yep. We absolutely. solved the mystery on the show. Yeah. He had, like, basically a buzz cut, and he had a beard, and, like, looked great. He looked awesome, oh, I yeah. thought. Kind of, like, uh, looked a little like Justin Thoreau, in my opinion. Like, the way Justin Thoreau, because they similarly have, like, the same sort of receding hairline yes, and a, a, yes, yes, a yes. good solid beard, but Elias Coteus is a good-looking dude. Uh, you wouldn't normally, like, put him up there with Justin Thoreau, but I just felt like a young Elias looked a little bit like him. But they get thrown into cells right next to each other. April then, like, sees a rat, and is like, oh, yeah, you look familiar, too. And then it, like, does this wipe where it, like, connects it directly to Splinter. This director loved doing shit like that. No, well, because the very first time we saw that transition was the opening. Uh, the, there was an opening scene for Turtles 3 where, you know, Kenshin is, he's back in Japan. He's riding away from the, he's riding away from the honor guard. They catch up to him. They capture him. His sword gets kind of stuck in a tree in the whole battle. And as that scene ends, the uh, people are galloping away on their horses, and then we just kind of zoom in to the sword. And then when the person takes the sword, there's just a split second cut to the you know from the sword from the sword starting to move, and then it cuts to that subway to the yeah the, to the, a subway, subway wishing by, by. Uh, which was a good cut. They they did several of these. I feel like the director really was trying hard. He was he both wrote and directed the movie, by the way. Yes, he's uh, uh, Stewart. Yeah, his name is Stuart Gillard. He's a big, like, TV director. He hasn't written a ton of stuff, but he's a huge, like, CW director, as yeah, you pointed I would, out. Yeah, I, I saw that earlier, all the, all the shows that he was involved with. So he's a good, long-standing director. This is one of his earlier efforts, and uh, it's it's not a, an amazing piece of work. Uh, but he did, I feel like, really tried to get some cool transitions. And honestly, the opening shot is of the rising sun itself and silhouetted against this red sun are five figures on horseback uh, traveling towards us in camera. It's a beautiful shot. It's a very beautiful shot. It's amazing. And then it cuts to a shot of them all riding on the beach and it's still tinted red from that red sun. Which, I mean, still itself is very scenic. Because, yeah, you see the horse galloping, but, you know, you're noticing this is on the beach. You know, you see the cliffs in the background. You see the the nice little uh, ocean waves crashing. Yeah, it's a really nice scene. And... Soon it goes just a normal color, but I remember those first two shots. I was like, oh shit, is this going to be a lot better than I remember it being? And I was wrong. <laughs> the sword fight was very like, because if you notice, they, they almost seem to be rubbing the swords against each other. Yeah. And then they just fixed it in post to where, like, I guess the, the like the noise has just made it sound like it was just, just a, a lot hard of clanging. hitting clanks yeah. and clanks. I did notice that. There's a lot of moments here where the action is a little bit soft. One thing I'm going to say for overall, which is great, is the guy, what's his name? Stephen Ho. Stephen Ho. Stephen Ho is the actor who is the stunt performer in the Donatello suit. He was amazing throughout. He had all the best uh, acrobatics. He had all the best fight scenes. It felt like Donatello was like a badass 
for real. Like, usually the Ninja Turtles are, you know, pretty good, but, like, you never, like, buy them as, like, oh, shit, don't want to mess with that guy. But, like, Donatello, one, he got to use the stick, the bow staff, the most because it's the only weapon that any of the four of them carry that won't murder you instantly. So he got to actually use his weapon, and he was tough with it, man. He was kicking ass with it. Like, he did a lot of baseball puns. Yeah, there's, yeah, just, yeah, just two scenes where he just kind of just threw that baseball terminology out there. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, not only are we returning Elias Coteus in this movie, also returning Corey Feldman, baby. Corey Feldman. And then we also we just uh, we also discover while while doing the research that the voice uh, voices of Michelangelo, who it turns out this is a uh, copywritten name. Oh yeah, whoever did the voice for Michelangelo as the credits were rolling, it said their name with like that little reserved symbol by it. So they had copyrighted their name somehow, which I don't think you're supposed to be able to do. All rights reserved. Yeah, so it's like is that it's obviously a fake name because you can't just copyright a real, your real name as Vince McMahon and the WWE have found out, which is why Vince McMahon always makes people create new names even if it's a real name, he makes them come up with a fake real name so he can copyright it and make more money off of it. It's a good trick. But this guy, obviously, playing Michelangelo, did the same thing. But Corey Feldman came back as the voice of Donatello, and I feel like they just let him say whatever the hell he wanted to. There's a lot of weird non sequiturs. It was good. There there were so many, like, part of the beauty of this movie for me was how the turtles interacted with each other. This is is one of the arguments I made to to John earlier. These these four brothers, these four teenagers seem to be almost kind of in a low-level, narcissistic world of their own because they're always talking amongst themselves, they're talking over one another, even while everything else is kind of going on in the movie. Like, the scene when they're just gathered around the scepter, which, I mean, ultimately also is kind of like a low-level MacGuffin for the uh, Oh, yeah, it's a, the, 100% the of MacGuffin. But, I mean, even then, you know, like, you can, you, you can still... A testament to the sound editing, you can hear everything they're saying to one another. But, you know, April is trying to get into this circle to try to find out what's going on. But these guys are just so wrapped up with each other and what they're saying to each other, you know. And then occasionally they'll, you know, they'll stop, they listen to her, they tell her what's going on. She doesn't really approve. She tries storming off and she makes that joke like, oh, I'm going to go find an apartment. We're going to be stuck here a while. And within half a beat, the turtles are already like, are there apartments here in Japan? I mean, no, no. I mean, look at, I mean, condos. Uh, timeshares, that kind of stuff, and they go right back to their little, like, in-group thing. Like, the gravity of the situation that they are in, in terms of traveling to Japan, potentially being stuck there if they go past the uh, uh, 60-hour time frame that uh, that Donatello was able to figure out earlier. But it's still, like, that just doesn't weigh on them. So that's why I say that low-key, that low-key kind of narcissism, because they're not just really, they're they're taking themselves more seriously than, uh, than the situation, you know? And then when they joke around with each other, they bust each other's bulls, like when uh like when Casey first appears, you know, like he asked Raph how his brain transplant went, and Raph just immediately just like what? Yeah, they're uh they're it's, it's a banter heavy movie. I think that they like lean on that a lot because I I and I will say that I feel like some of the banter sort of diminishes the stakes. Like even towards the end, I'm sorry to jump around, but even towards the end, they're sneaking into the castle and they're just like goofing the entire time, and it's like guys. Game face is on here. God damn it. Like, just be serious for a minute because you're in a very serious situation. And let me go back to one note real quick. Donatello lays out the science behind the time travel, or the science such as it is, of the time travel uh, early on in the movie. And he's like, we have 60 hours here before we are turtle soup. Which I thought meant... Because he, he said the space-time continuum would basically correct this issue if they don't get back in time. So I thought that meant, like, they would just, like 
I don't know, implode or something, or just like <laughs> cease to exist back in this old time period. So they didn't seem to be too worried about that after a while, because that's how I took it. But then as the the movie wore on, it was more like, oh, yeah, if we don't get back in 60 hours, we're just stuck here. But we live out our days in feudal Japan. That would be one thing. Yeah. But um, I was just curious about that. And do we think that it always just meant, like, by meaning turtle soup, like, oh, we're shit out of luck and we're going to be stuck there? Or do you think that he meant, like, oh, we're going to go kablooey if we don't get back in 60 hours. Well, it was definitely never a favorable situation because when you think back to the cartoon series, you know, when Shredder was threatening the turtles, you know, and he's just like, oh, I'll make turtle soup out of you, you know? Mm-hmm. so it's Tonight just, I dine on turtle soup. Yeah, and but, so it's just, so it was just one of those situations where, like, look, we do not want to be in a position where we are turtles and soup. We just want to be in a position <laughs> where we are turtles. Right. So I just knew, I mean, because, I mean, at, at this point, we still knew, I mean, even when we were that age, we still understood a la Back to the Future, how some of the, you know, relative physics of, uh, of, of time travel worked. Right. And this was obviously in a pre-end game time before Endgame basically threw out all the laws of time travel as we knew them from movies and just uh, took a big old dump on them. And <laughs> Although now now that I'm thinking about it, do you think that when the little bulb that was in the scepter that would start spinning, right. triggering the, uh, uh, the triggering time, the time travel itself? Would you think it was spinning uh, at 88 miles per hour? I bet it was. Oh, I bet man. it was. I hope so. We gotta reach. We gotta reach out to the writers. Yeah. So who? Uh, well, Stuart. Stuart man. What, what's his name? <laughs> Stuart. I mean, we're just, okay. Then cool. Then we're just reaching out to Stuart we're, Gillard. Uh, we're just, reach out to us. Hwig podcast at gmail.com. And then, but I do like the fact that simply open wide the gates of time. Boom. That device turns on. Yeah, so. seriously. And I did have questions about like why, because in the entire movie, it, it is the MacGuffin. The Shogun wants it because it's this family heirloom. They think it allows them power to always have victory in battle. So they just carry it into battle. They don't actually use the time shit ever, but they're just like, oh yeah, if we have this scepter, we're more powerful as an army. And it's a it's a family heirloom, and it's very important to him. Uh, that's why he's after it. The villagers are after it because I guess the shogun's after it. Also, Walker, the English bad guy, is after it because the shogun's after it. Anyway, how the hell did it end up in some fucking antique shop in New York for April to buy for like thirty five bucks to give to Splinter as just some thing? It's all a little coincidental to me. Okay? I love I love my theory. My theory is there's just the one scepter, right? There's the one scepter. And then obviously, as time goes on, the longer, like the longer the point in time, the more the more different uh, options you have in stopping in time. So clearly, whether it got sold or bought or whatever, you know, throughout time, it was still in, you know, it was 19, 1993, 1993 New York. That's cool. So we're in 1993 New York. We can still go back to any point in time previously where the scepter existed. Yeah. Obviously, and so that's, I'm not arguing that. But yeah, but I'm just saying. But I mean, like, I mean, how does how does anything wind up anywhere? I know. I'm like, just in, saying that. For, well, I guess probably what honestly what happened is you American grew, imperialists probably came and killed the shogun and all of his family. Probably burned that village to the ground, stole it, brought it back and all, also, to England or to America, and then it ended up. Uh, getting sold because they lost the the track of the value of it. And also, I mean, given your background with pawn shops, you know, whenever you've worked there, haven't you ever, like, when someone's come in with something and you would just kind of look at the person and be like, this doesn't seem like something that you would that you would normally have. W- whether that triggered any kind of, like, you know, ethical questions like, oh, cool, am I about to yeah. pawn stolen property? It, it's here? less about ancient uh, Japanese scepters and more about 
30 Blu-ray players still in the box. <laughs> Something. Why do you, sir, why do you have 30 Blu-ray players that are unopened? Uh, I was going to give them for Christmas gifts, but then the relatives don't, uh, they, they, they decided not to celebrate Christmas this year. And so I want to uh, respect their beliefs. Okay. 20 bucks a piece. Oh man. No. Can you do, I, I gotta have, I gotta have like 60 bucks each. Um, all right, I'll do, I'll still do 20. He's like, all right, fine, let's do it. <laughs> that is every pawn transaction, folks. A little peek behind the curtain there. <laughs> but, uh, so, uh, let's see, let's just try to cover some, some quick ground here because, uh, again, there's not a, a whole lot to talk about in terms of the actual plot of the movie. Raphael befriends a little kid named Yoshi. I cannot believe they did not make a, uh, Yoshi the Dinosaur from Mario Brothers joke anywhere in here. Yeah. Because uh, this is actually pretty close to when the Mario Brothers movie came out, a movie that I plan on covering very soon on this show one of my favorite film going experiences of my life so uh raphael befriends his kid the kid's got a temper raphael sees a bit of himself in this child he's like oh, i've got a temper too let me help this kid out here let me let me sit down with him and make him fly a kite instead of portraying battles while he's playing let, let me let this kid be a kid let him enjoy the little things in life that you know what that i just realized you saw all the turtles while they were in the village that they saved. They all worked on their own individual thing. Donatello was trying to work on a replica of the scepter because at that point they didn't know where the scepter was. So they mm-hmm. were so they were building another. So they were just going to make another one from scratch, like a blacksmith. Because yep, that was, definitely would work. A blacksmith was going to make a time traveling device from scratch, and Raphael he was just kind of he was kind of taking everything in and befriends the kid, even Michelangelo. Uh, who decides he's going to go up and check out uh, Mitsu, who's up on, she's up at one of the, like a shrine or a prayer center or whatever it's called. And, you know, he kind of sneaks up and then she responds and they kind of have a little one-off talking. And then, uh, you know, it's revealed that like, oh yeah, I'm thinking about this guy. And Michelangelo knows exactly who it is, makes the promise, uh, makes the promise like, oh, don't worry, he'll be back as soon as we leave. She's like, okay. And then he turns right around and looks at her and goes, oh, so uh, what's your sign? Yeah. He immediately starts hitting on her. Yeah, Michelangelo's is... the horny one. <laughs> Leonardo, meanwhile, did nothing. Yeah, we didn't we didn't see anything with fucking nothing. We didn't see anything from him except when he was the only one that seemed to know how to ride a horse, so long as he was standing in <laughs> yeah. in the saddle. He's so good at riding a horse. Um and uh more importantly about Michelangelo, one moment I did actually love is when he's trying to show them how to make pizza. <laughs> and he uh, he overcooks it, so he ends up turning it into a frisbee. And there's a lot of wacky like slide whistle sound effects and like gonk bonk. There's a lot of great sound effects work in this. Ryan, please tell the people what the best sound effect moment is, or it's a couple times during the movie. But please the, enlighten the, them. The best sound effect uh, sound effect that we heard it was only like t- it only happened twice, but it was that famous potted plant breaking. Um, yeah, from the fir- the f- Wet Hot American Summer. Yes, and then, but I mean, I I wish I knew exactly what like where where we where we could find that because I guess it that kind of falls in with like the Wilhelm scream. Yeah, it's up there with the Wilhelm scream. There's another like crazy scream. I don't know the name of it, but there's like like four or five sound effects that you have heard. We call a it thousand times. We like Mike and I got in the habit of calling it the uh, Ah Real Monsters scream. Oh, the Wilhelm scream, you mean? No, no, no. There's a Wilhelm scream, and then there's that really long dragging scream. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. a yarg, more like yeah. a, I can't even do it. But uh. Uh, but yeah, I love these sound effects that just appear in everything. And they really did feel like they just had like a, a wacky sound effects library. <laughs> but the first time, uh, I believe uh, Michelangelo, Michelangelo, he throws his nunchucks. 
And that's actually believable that that no you would hear that noise because as you can see from their subway layer that there's there's just there's just junk everywhere yeah you know so that's believable. The second time it happens, oh my god, the second time is so great. Walker and Michelangelo are having a standoff in the uh, in the street. Uh, the goofy character Niles uh, he has his musket ready from a distance. He thinks he's going to help his captain out by shooting Michelangelo beforehand. Turtles get there in time to save him. They wet Willie Niles. They wet Will- <laughs> so he shoots into the air and it shoots Walker's hat off and the hat falls backwards and apparently breaks a potted plant somewhere <laughs> yes, and you, it's hear so the, good. you hear the sound. it's so good oh it's it's hilarious i highly recommend looking up that scene if nothing oh, else man. uh that part is great that because it reminded me of wet hot american summer and uh and that's never a bad thing uh, and I, honestly, like, I need to lay off the movie a little bit. I think I'm judging it too harshly because I'm thinking of it like the same way that they made the first one, where it's a serious movie uh, that was really trying hard to be this indie kind of dark thing. And this is a kid's movie. There are, like, so many slide whistle sound effects. Uh, the character, they defeat the Niles character multiple times by sticking their fingers in his ears, and he flips out every time. He just, like, loses his mind every time, as if you're, like... I don't know. As I don't, I don't. I can't even. There's nothing I can think of that it's even like. Like, how, why would that make you freak out so much? Because the final time, the fi- I mean, I guess it took because it happened once before, and then it happened again in the village fight, and then in the very end fight, when the turtles were getting one up on everyone, um, they're looking at Niles, and Niles just drops what he's doing, and he gives himself a wet willy. Oh, yes. So clearly, this was something that was very scarring for him. So I guess if he goes back to England or wherever he's next, if anybody's kind of like whether they're like kind of like patting him on the shoulder or anything or if his anyone's fingers come anywhere close to his ears yeah he's just gonna, he's gonna flip out because of this trauma he's never gonna be intimate with a woman or man ever again because if they if their fingers get anywhere near his ears he's just gonna shut down and like get in the fetal position and just cry on the floor by and himself then when they, and then when they ask him why he's gonna explain he was like oh these horrible demons put their fingers in my head. and they're gonna be like <laughs> and if it's a prostitute which you know given the time they'll probably be more more accepted. Yeah, and given the time and given the way this man looks it's <laughs> more gonna, like Likely that it's a prostitute. And they're going to go like, okay, uh, you're going to pay, and uh, I'm going to go now. <laughs> yeah, and they're going to stick him in an insane asylum. So eventually they let out the Casey Jones stand-in, whose name is what, Wit? Wit, during the during the initial rescue of April from uh, the, yeah. da- the Daimyo Castle. Yeah, he's like, hey, they're going to hang me, get me out of here. He gets to a point where he sees the scepter, which everybody's after, and guess what? He's really a spy working for Walker, and he steals the scepter and betrays the turtles and takes April back to no, the castle. Mitsu, he kidnaps. He oh, sorry, Mitsu. Yeah, ki- yeah, yeah. Kidnaps Mitsu because at this point the turtles were under the assumption they couldn't find the scepter because uh, they thought Mitsu had hidden the scepter, thereby forcing the turtles to stay and fight her sh- battle. Like yeah, yeah like, the like fight, yeah, fight the village battles for her. So they're kind of not vibing that. And then the betrayal happens. Uh, everything goes down. Um, and so, you know, the turtles realize. So I think more than anything, they're going to the castle to actually get the scepter rather than save Mitsu. Yeah, absolutely. Because but, they're still like, fuck, we're going to be stuck here. We got to get back. April is the biggest proponent of getting back. She doesn't oh, want to be stuck. The grandfather did come clean. The grandfather said it was him that it was it was yeah. the grandfather's fault. Who was yeah. also the swordmaster in Red Sonia? Shout out Red Sonia. Yeah, boy. Um, that Brigitte Nielsen, Red Sonia. Um, yeah, this grandfather was like, I'm the one because everyone can speak English too. 
Um, perfect which, English. Yeah, perfect English. He says, I was the one that's, that stole and hid the scepter. Yoshi, the kid, after befriending Raphael, is the one who gives Raphael the scepter. And Raphael's like, hey, yo, we got the scepter over here. And uh, anyway, so they, t- they take it back. Wit steals it, takes it back. And really, Elias Coteus is truly acting on a different level than anybody else oh, in yeah. this movie. You could tell he put like time and thought into his Stuart, character. Stuart Wilson was really good, too. I Walker. I think... I disagree with that because he is chewing up the scenery like nobody's business. And that can be fun. But I think a, but he knew what kind of movie he was in. I think, if anything, Elias Coteus and, for the most part, the guy playing the Shogun both were in like a more serious movie in their minds. Mm-hmm. And then they probably showed up to the premiere and like, what were we in? What happened here? Because the Shogun, I feel like, is very serious and is, is there's a lot going on in his eyes and in his expression. And so the turtles end up going back to the castle. They lead the rebellion against the uh, poor man's Pirates of the Caribbean guys, against the Shogun's uh, army. Army. They fight, do some fun fighting stuff. I mean, the fights generally are not super great, but there's a couple of. But most have- importantly, it, it's not like it, it's it's a big it's a big kind of uh, battle scene. Not necessarily battle for gotham big not necessarily all the big um it's not it's it's no end game okay all the big all the big war epics i mean this is these are all actual actors people working together and uh the one thing i do love about this final battle sequence leonardo after two other movies and almost you know we're almost to the end of this movie finally finds somebody else who is carrying a motherfucking sword and he gets to have a legit sword fight for the first time ever in these movies. Yeah, but with one sword, though. I mean, yeah, because Leonardo Leo, has he is, honor. He is a two sword guy. He is a two sword guy. I forget. I think maybe he gets one sword knocked away or something. But he is fighting with one sword. But I just like that. Finally, it's like, oh snap! Like Leonardo gets to sword fight for once. And uh, unfortunately, the actor playing the Shogun, you could tell, is not an accomplished swordsman. Uh, because it was, the, it was the I mean it was it was recycling through the same four moves. Yes, uh, which is not great, but I thought it was cool. Being a very big Leonardo fan myself, I always gravitate towards like the the more earnest leader type characters. Like so, I'm a huge Captain America fan. I loved Leonardo so much when I was ten years old. I tried to convince my mom to let me change my name to Leonardo. Uh, I did not do that, unfortunately. Leonardo. Leonardo. I, sure you tell me I could have potentially met Leonardo Bring yeah. that one fateful day in Valdosta. Yeah, well, I at the time, I thought I had her on the ropes, and I was like, well, what if I just make my middle name Leonardo? I know she never had any intention of letting me change any part of my name to Leonardo. But what's, your, what, what's your middle name now? Ryan. Ooh, good call, Miss Susan. So, but I'm a big Leonardo fan, so seeing him, he doesn't have a whole lot to do in this movie other than ride a horse standing up. So having him have that moment to sword fight, and eventually he, of course, does not cut or murder the Shogun. He eventually just cuts a rope. Uh, which drops a giant bell not on be- him. Yeah, but not before kind of, you know, scissor chopping the little Bushido knot off the yes. top of his head. The the Shogun thought he that Leonardo had his number. He disarmed him, knocked him back, and the guy basically was like, all right, kill me, because he was, he will die with honor. But Leonardo takes I mean, his other sword. That was a big. That was a big theme back then. Oh, absolutely! And uh, holds him like scissors. He's like, uh, it's like, oh shit! He's about to cut my head off. He just cuts the 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 knot top off, and uh, Leonardo makes some little quip, 
and that's that. And eventually the turtles yeah. win. The the bad guy Walker pulls out a cannon and he's going to murder them. Uh, but Leonardo uses his head dip, the same trick that Michelangelo used in the first movie. Yeah. It says, man, I love being a turtle. They eventually chase Walker up onto the walls of the castle. He falls off in a very wonky shot. Wit, uh, Wit actually cuts a catapult. And the catapult, like, oh, which, right. it, which was already like, it's like a flaming bull, which I guess was just ready to go the whole time. Oh, yeah. That was just right. Well, yeah, that makes sense. They and just aimed, keep him around. And aimed. Like, yeah. <laughs> aimed perfectly for this one area. But Wit, by the way, a.k.a. Coteus, he is the only person who had a true arc in this movie. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to stand by that because he was a spy for uh, Walker, put in to try to learn more about these turtles and to eventually get the scepter. He gets it. But when Walker's like, all right, let's kill these turtles. Let's shoot them with guns. Wit's like, no, nah, man, that's not part of the deal. These are my dudes and don't touch them. And he's like, well, you know what? If if you're their bro, then you're gonna die too. Like Walker, Walker did not put up with anyone uh, that had Stockholm syndrome, <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, so Wit eventually turns on his his former boss and does the right thing and uh, knocks him loose when Walker is about to what threaten them with a gun. He he was just trying to escape, and they basically helped him escape by falling into the ocean. Uh, in a very poorly done shot where he just sort of, there's no splash. There's He just sort of no, vanishes. The splash, there, there's the splash noise. It's like right, very, very right. low level. But no visual splash. And I even remember as a kid watching that being like, oh, that was weak. Did they not finish this movie or something? Like, what what's going on? And then when you think about it, how many movies where the bad guy falls into the water at the very end... How often do you do you die? Because he's technically underwater. We have to assume that he died uh, off screen. Yes, which obviously is the point of them throwing him into the ocean is uh, to keep him from being murdered on screen for all the kitties. Potential plot point for the fourth Ninja Turtles movie had they made it. The Return of Walker. Walker survives, gets back up, and he's able to get he's able to get a hold of the uh, of the scepter. And then oh. changes place with somebody. Obviously, yeah. the turtles have decided to get rid of the scepter responsibly. Right. And then once they see kind of Walker around on TV, then they know. Like while April's reporting, she sees Walker. And they're like, "Oh, we gotta murder that guy now." You and know. then it gets really dark and gritty. Yeah. Uh, Full circle. <laughs> finally, so the the turtles win, and the really the like sort of emotional crux of the movie happens at the point where they have the scepter. They're ready to go. But Michelangelo, out of nowhere, is like, no, man, I want to stay. I want to be part of this world where I'm respected, I'm liked. I can live out in the open without people being scared of me, without people being freaked out. And Raphael's like, yeah, bruh, me too, bruh. And Leo's like, I don't know. Well, because they tell tell Donatello, and they're like, he's like, are you kidding? I do not want to stay here or whatever. And then he looks to Leonardo for backup, and then Leonardo's like, well, actually... And then that's when both April and Donatello, they're just like, oh, my God. Yeah. Which I call bullshit on Leonardo saying that. Leonardo would have been like, no, we got to go back and take care of Splinter. The guy 100%. clearly knows how to ride a horse standing up. That makes him a valuable asset in battle. In feudal Japan. But, you know, Ryan and I have been having the discussion all day. I've been saying this movie has no arcs. The one arc that it should have been at the very beginning Raphael, as they're training, throws his sigh into the radio that's playing the ZZ Top song that they're dancing to. And they're like, oh boy, here he goes. And we're used to Raphael being the one with the outbursts. And they say, what's wrong? And he's mad because they're stuck down here. They have to stay in the shadows. They have to live in secret. And over the course of this movie, he befriends a kid who 
kind of brings out a softer side to Raphael, helps Raphael curb his own impulses, his own temper, and it's a world where he is respected by everybody. Raphael should have been the guy at the end saying, I'm going to be the one to stay. Sorry, I love all of you, but let me stay here. This is a place where I feel at peace. So it makes no goddamn sense that Michelangelo, who we haven't set up that he has any problem living in the subway in New York. In fact, at the beginning, Raphael's like, oh, why are we down here? Michelangelo's like, chill, dude. It's fun to live in the sewers or whatever. So anyway, had Raphael been the one to say all this, I feel like it would have been a really strong arc for Raphael to realize, like, you know what? I know my place, and no matter where I go, I can tame my temper, and I can tame this monster that's inside of me. That would have been a good arc. Unfortunately, it didn't happen that way. I'll give you that. If he would have said outright that he would have said that, and then reverse, Michelangelo jumps on it, you know? Yeah. But, but Michelangelo was being very impulsive. He wanted to stay. Yeah, he, there's a lot of other benefits in terms of the uh, the acceptance that, that they had within the village and everything, but there's also one beautiful matter of why he wanted to stay, because every guy, especially teenagers, are guilty of doing this. And of course, he had feelings for Mitsu. He was just like, nope, I want to stay. I want to be with her. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, he did have a bit of a crushy crush on her, but he also had a crush on April. And I mean, I guess it's pretty clear that she's not going to get down with Michelangelo. None of these human women are. Speaking of, speaking of women, so there's an earlier battle scene when the turtles first rescue April from the castle. They're out by a river getting cleaned up and everything. And that's when the villagers descend upon April and the turtles you know, to attack them because they're still dressed in the honor guard uniform. So they just assume right. that they're all that. So, you know, you have... That was actually the first major... Uh, Action scene. No, sorry. Set, yeah, set, there's a second fight scene. It was 35 minutes. We actually timed it. It was 35 minutes before the first action scene. The second action scene happened only five minutes later. Yeah. And then it was another... Four 40 minutes before the the final action scene. And then while the in while the turtles they're not doing any they're not doing anything lethal to all these villagers that are that are attacking them, you know, they're dispatching them fairly kind of simple. They're all throwing of, most of them in the water, by the way. They're they're next to a little creek or something and they're yeah. just throwing them all into the water I as mean, if that's going to stop them. I mean, there were no tires, no beer cans. Oh, that's another you're just reinforcing my point. There's a point right before they get ambushed by the villagers where Raphael's like yeah, saying like, oh, look how clean this water is. Look how fresh the air is. And like, Leo, Leo's like, I don't see anything. But Raphael's like, this is great. This is what the world should be like. And uh, and then, yeah, so why the fuck is Michelangelo the one bringing up this point at the end? Well, Michelangelo uh, also wasn't there at the time, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying that. It's, and I know all three of the movies would then, Raphael would be more so the Wolverine of the group where it's yeah. all about his arc. Uh, and how it informs the rest of the turtles. But man, at least it would have given us one character arc to really latch on to. Besides this arc that I'm now creating that I wish would have been the case, and Wit, who has just a very minor, like, twisty-turny relationship with his boss, yeah, we don't really have a whole lot of character arcs here, which I feel like is the only problem that I have. The turtles are all hunky-dory with each other the entire movie. There's never a point where somebody gets pissed off and walks away, which happens uh, in both one and two, Raphael gets pissed off and goes away, and the first one gets beat up, and that brings them all back together. And then the second one, he and uh, Kino go off to join the Foot Clan because Raphael gets tired of waiting around uh, for his brothers to get off their asses to bring the fight to the Foot Clan. And so it would have been a rehash had somebody... But had they made a different, had Michelangelo gotten pissed or something? I don't know. It would have been something. I don't really have anything. I don't have really anything to to talk to on that because I, I know because there's nothing to talk well about. Then, well, okay. Well, then maybe over the two movies, or as I like to say, in this universe, 
<laughs> Ralph has learned this similar lesson again and again and again, you know, and, you know, like anybody with a bad habit kind of falls back into a, a certain way of thinking. Like I said, he gets ticked off and he throws the sigh and it goes right into the radio. But that skill comes in handy later because remember, as they're getting attacked right down by the river, they're getting attacked down, down by, by the river. And down by the river. <laughs> he throws his... He, the uh, Mitsu. Mitsu, yeah. Mitsu all of a sudden appears, and she's got uh, arrow knocked, ready to go. And who is she aiming at? She is aiming at my beautiful page. But, you know, for the movie's sake, she was aiming at April. And so Raph notices from across the way, and he was like, huh? Uh-oh. So he gets his sigh... And because he's had practice destroying radios, he just he chucks that sigh across the field and breaks Mitsu's bow and arrow. And yeah. just and it was just funny because of course quip time. He's like, no, 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 lady, that ain't nice. Yeah, there's a lot of quips in this. So okay, so we've kind of discussed the very broad strokes of what this movie's about. Again, there's not a whole lot of like depth to mine here. Walker's a bad guy. He he chews the scenery wherever he goes. He's got a very simple goal to make more money. The Shogun just wants his scepter back for some reason. Slash, I guess, wants his son back. And the turtles just want to get home along with April O'Neil. That's it. They get home. Eventually, the uh, we do have a, a rather fun uh, side story of Casey Jones entertaining these uh, the warriors, cultivating them for technology and lifestyle that is like centuries ahead of what they will ever see in their own lifetime. Yeah. So he introduces them to hockey, to television, introduces them to probably uh, uh, the beer, bar, the bar life. Yeah, they yeah bar life, and to arcade games. They're having a blast. They don't want to come back. Uh, so they're feeling the same way some of our turtle friends are feeling. They're like, nah, man, we want to stay. Again, not like a really deep story, but it's just a fun runner that kind of goes through the entire story. Uh, meanwhile, Splinter, as per usual, is sitting there just concerned for his sons, ready for them to come back, and being a very, uh, very stiff puppet whose legs don't work by the way because half the time he's behind a wall he's like the muppet show or something a a, a movable window oh yeah the the window that he quote-unquote puts down and up but it clearly moves without him touching it it's like the robot from uh space camp which i know you haven't seen ryan but in it it's like supposed to be the robot's arms moving it's jinx the robot he's supposed to be moving doors with his arms uh, but clearly the doors are just opening by magic or the force. Flinner's doing the same thing. So the turtles make it home. Let's talk about what we love about it because we do need to wrap up. I would love to talk more about Ninja Turtles. I'd love to talk more about our love for them and for us to mind this more deeply. But let's do rapid fire. I feel like I've been pretty down on the movie, so I want to get out what I think is great about it. Uh, let's just do rapid fire. I'll do one, you do one. Starting with opening shot, beautiful shot, wet, wonderfully done. The rising sun with the uh, silhouette of the horses. Mwah, perfection. So good. What's something that's great about it? You know what? It's it's kind of an overall thing. I, I know we're kind of we're kind of on the verge of running over a little bit, but I do want to sit there and explain the reason I love this movie, the reason I love any of the turtles movies, or the reason just my my attitude towards movies in general, especially given the whole notion of time travel and everything that maybe it wasn't so much about you know the character development, the story arcs, and you know all the other stuff that given where we are and how we interpret movies and how we enjoy them, it's definitely different and a little bit of course more you know again cultivated and than it was when we were than when we were just young kids pulling on our parents' arms to take us to these movies. But if there's one thing I will always give the Turtles movies credit for, and three just is no exception, is sometimes it's not really about the destination, it's about the journey. 
and I still have as much love for the Ninja Turtles as I did when I was younger, and this movie was no exception. Granted, yes, the what I what I was used to in the first two movies in terms of the looks was a little different, but you're still captivated by the turtles. You love the turtles, but I urge anyone who's ever come down on the movie to just, I mean, watch it again, and just as something, like, you know what, this is simply a movie. Yeah, of course there's some stuff that not makes sense, you know, like the show that everyone loved for 10 years during the last season had a lot of stuff that didn't make sense, you know, or was, were clearly, you know, screw-ups, whether it be a water bottle Game, or, Game of Thrones you're talking about, Yeah, right? whether it be like a water bottle or a coffee cup, but you know, but I mean, it's not really, everyone's so fixated on the destination that you're completely forgetting the journey there. But then again, maybe for talking, walking, ninja, teenage turtles, that's not everyone's cup of tea. It's my cup of tea. I love cups of tea, and I'm trying to share <laughs> said cups of tea with everybody. But I would again. have a sip of that tea every single day. All right, so we've gotten away from rapid fire, but you do bring up a good point that what is great about this movie is that it's the oh, turtles yeah. being the turtles. Because it is so much about those four. You mentioned it earlier where even if it is taking the some of the air out of the balloon in terms of tension, in terms of the plot, like we just get pure, unfiltered, those four brothers having fun with each other. And it's like it's as close as you'll ever get to just hanging out with the turtles. Because there's a long chunk in the movie where they're just in this village where not a whole lot's going on. And it's just like hanging out with them. And it's just like being and living with these guys. And that's fun. That's just fun no matter how you slice it. You do get to see them do some fighting stuff. You do get to see Leonardo have a kind of slow fight. You do see Donatello do some genuinely badass stuff. Raphael throwing the side to save April from the arrow. Genuinely badass. But just a lot of fun banter. A lot of fun moments with these characters that we do love. And it is to the point where when you get to the third movie, we know these people. We know they're going to win. This, Like I said, the further adventures of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Absolutely. And for that, I do think it's great. I think Elias Coteus is Casey Jones and his wit. Really, like, putting a lot of effort into these characters. He re-inhabited that character of Casey Jones so perfectly. Besides him being a little bit clean, like, played the part to perfection. From the moment he walked back on the screen, he waltzed back into our lives and right back into our hearts. He was great. Paige Turco, obviously, got all that... That grit and uh, spunk that we want from help, April. You just can't help but smile. Yeah, and I mean, for you, uh, there's a point because she's got this more traditional, like samurai type garb. Uh, that what's his name? The the K- Kenshin. Kenshin was wearing, and she eventually is like, "Oh, I gotta sexy this up a little bit. Give the adults that are bringing the kids a little something." So she like trims them down to like kind of a almost like a skirt, so her legs are showing the whole time. A respectable so, skirt. Yeah, respect. Not like a little mini skirt, nothing too scandalous, but you do get to see her legs the whole time. So, and she's got nice legs. So, there you go. That's something nice for you. Uh, to quote Donatello and Leonardo, swing. Yeah, swing. Oh, that's the one thing that I forgot. I have all these lines that I wanted to bring up. Corey Feldman, who is known for being batshit crazy, I'm pretty sure he just made up all of his lines when he was in the booth. And uh, they're all there's like tons of pop culture references that don't exactly work. There's one point where they where they are rescuing April and they're they're jumping in down this like tube, uh, basically down the shit tube to go down to the swamp. And uh, one of the turtles says, "I'll be back." There's another point where uh, I, I believe uh, Donatello says uh, before he hits somebody with his bow staff, he says, "It's hammer time." <laughs> we get Donatello and Leonardo saying "swing." 
as April uh, uncovers her legs. Oh, we got somebody who said, get down with your turtle self. That, that, that was him. That was who? Corey Feldman, Donatello. Oh, yeah, Donatello. Get down with your turtle self. Oh, he also said, as they're climbing the wall uh, to go do something, rescue, to, or well, to... Yeah, the, the final fight, to get the, to get the scepter. Yeah, to get the scepter, they say, turtles, it's not a job, it's an adventure, which is a, from the Navy, <laughs> Navy the yeah. tagline from the Navy. Oh, God, the probably the worst line, and they used it in the trailer, because we watched the trailer afterwards, is uh, the Shogun comes in, he's like, oh, who are you? And he says, you were expecting the Adams Family? <laughs> and he, like, dips his head back and forth, like, he is saying the most clever fucking line in the world. Which means, I mean, like I said, the jokes they make amongst themselves you know and it's just one of those things where it's you know like when we're a group of friends we want to make jokes to make our uh, to make our friends laugh you know the jokes that they say and sometimes we're very confident with the jokes that we tell the jokes we tell ourselves you know like you, you can definitely attest to me laughing at my own jokes multiple times <laughs> yeah once or twice so but i mean and they were no exception you know like they said what they knew was funny and whether the other people laughed was no big uh, well, uh, no big deal. In the case of you're expecting the Adams family, somebody literally does say, <laughs> "Good one." <laughs> I think it's like Leonardo said, "Good one." It's like, is it a good one? Um, there's also, "I'm a turtle and I can't get up." Help! I'm a turtle and I can't get Help, up. Help! I'm a turtle and I can't get up. These are almost all Corey Feldman lines. And then one thing that actually made me chuckle legitimately was the Shogun. Uh, after he gets put into the bell uh, mm-hmm. that Leonardo trapped him in, eventually the cannonball. When Leonardo ducks it, the cannonball blows off the top of the bell, and the Shogun comes out and his hair is all spiky and crazy because he was like a. It's a cartoon. It's a living cartoon. So his hair is like all wild and spiked out, and um, <laughs> and Donatello says. Oh, look, Don King, which I was just so not expecting a Don King reference in this that that actually caught me by surprise and made me laugh a little bit. Um, but yeah, the, having Corey Feldman back as Donatello was great. I think Donatello was much more intelligent in the first movie or really came across as more intelligent in the first well, movie. Well, the second one, because he also had um, Rachel Ghoul to work off of. Rachel. Excuse oh, me, you sorry. Mean- sorry. David Warner, a.k.a. Professor Perry. Who, right, right, right. The scientist was, guy. Who was the voice of... Uh, Ra's al Ghul in uh, uh, right. the Batman animated series. I don't mean intelligent in that he can spit out some science mumbo-jumbo, which he certainly does in this movie where occasionally he'll be like just thinking to himself like, Ugh, the square root of this. And, like he's just like muttering nonsense science stuff. Yeah. I mean, he uh, the fact that like when they're playing Trivial Pursuit, he knows War and Peace immediately. He just has a sense of intelligence where he's always observing what's going on in the first movie and commenting on everything. And he's taking it all in rather than reacting as he does in this movie, just spouting out pop culture bullshit every five seconds hey man but hey cory feldman was a commodity at the time so i don't i i get it i see why they had it they had all their trailer lines from one actor <laughs> they went from a legorama to a linorama what's a legorama uh oh legorama like when Paige from Turco, the movie yeah god, swing. For, god you forget i know i'm i'm the worst that's actually my curse though because i remember a lot more about movies than it, I rightfully should. It is your gift. It is your curse. Yes. Um, at the end of the day, the movie was, like I said, it's a fun It's a fun little jaunt with the turtles. It is an adventure. It's not going to be super deep. It is not going to knock your socks off with character development. But if you want like, just a good hour and a half, one hour and 36 minutes, the runtime of this thing, if you just want some fun, it puts the turtles in a totally different setting that we don't expect gives us a new way of looking at these creatures, uh, a more respectful way where they don't have to hide in the shadows. It's a really fun time. I love everything about the Ninja Turtles. Now, granted, it's a very specific love. 
Like, I love everything from the 80s, uh, from the 80s cartoon all the way to the movies. And even though, yeah, I, I still watched the CGI live-action ones, I didn't feel the magic that I felt when we were watching Turtles with more practical effects. And it was just, it, I guess it was just because it was just simpler times. Yeah, they had some, the, the newer stuff that has some, has some cool, some cool, uh, cool versions, cool iterations, but it's not my turtle. It's not my turtle's experience. My turtle's experience goes from the birth of the original comic until about, you know, uh, gosh, I guess really the end of, uh, uh the end of, uh, Turtles 3. So yeah. that, so, so that's usually where it is where, I mean, even then I was excited for the, the fourth one, which was just the TMNT, which was an all CGI movie. That's a movie that we, just, we saw that in the theater together. If we I'm not did mistaken. see that in the theater. That was actually one of the first movies we saw together when I moved to LA. Yeah. But with this, with this particular uh, TMNT movie, the CGI one, I, I consider that one the lesser of the four, the four movies of that, uh, of the box set that we actually watched uh, Turtles 3 from. Kind of like a, kind of like a diehard effect. You ever notice that people watch Die Hard 1, they love it. Die Hard 2, they're like, eh. Die Hard 3, they're just like, okay, it's whatever. Die Hard 4, no, I hate it. It's terrible. And then they release another, that, that fifth Die Hard. Which, which I was, literally fell asleep in the theater. Which during. was just the worst. Die Hard 5 makes Die Hard 2 look like Die Hard 1, I would say. Also, Die Hard 3, Die Hard with a Vengeance, is a fucking saint. And don't oh. say a damn oh, word no, no, about no, no, it. No, no, it's no. great. I absolutely, like, that's actually probably my favorite of the... Or maybe I'm, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just impartial to third installments of because i mean hell i even liked robocop 3 indiana jones 3 you're insane for liking robocop 3 that much indiana jones and the last crusade however i don't disagree with you i had a whole thing about elsa i think an episode or two ago not frozen elsa not frozen elsa not i definitely do not care for that character but that's it that's why we think this movie is great i know that it seems like there's a lot to wade through there uh but you know just go watch the movie for yourself you're gonna have a fun time you're gonna laugh you're gonna have some exciting uh ninja action here and there and you're just gonna enjoy watching the team Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, if you love these characters, then you should love this movie. It is great because it carries on the legacy of those four brothers and their journey through life together. Uh, and then also you got the Casey Jones of it. You got the April O'Neil of it. You even got the Splinter of it. It's just a great time uh, on your Blu-ray player. Or it may even be on uh, Amazon Prime right now for free, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think it is. Uh, yeah. So go watch it now. Go load it up. But guys, tell me, what did you think? Did this movie kick shell, or is it turtle soup? Let us know. How can you let us know? As mentioned, <laughs> you can email us on hwigpodcast at gmail.com. That's short for Here's Why It's Great Podcast at gmail.com. We've also got Twitter. We've got Instagram at hwigpodcast. And finally, we have a Facebook page uh, where we like to post all of our pictures, all of our new episodes. That would be facebook.com backslash hwig podcast ryan thank you so much it's been great having you on it's been great just super fun to talk about ninja turtles with you i wish i, I wish we could do like a whole series for this oh man you know what going back in time it's like we almost need to get a time scepter to go back in time so we can so record we can more st- so we can start over we can give our younger versions the advice a la bill and ted style oh, like great like do the whole trilogy yes we should we should <laughs> uh don't worry one day we will get around to doing more of these teenage Mutant ninja turtle movies but until then i'm john bring i am the guest ryan pate and here's why it's great
expecting maybe uh, the Adams family? <laughs> Good one. <laughs>